0: Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. The book of Daniel can spark some debates about eschatology. That's just a really big word talking about the end times. And you can get into this and you're like, well, it says this and it says this and it says this. This is not what he's trying to do. Okay, I think God provides some deep doctrine theology stuff just to entertain men while they're on this planet. We're not going to get it right anyway. And so we just, we just do that while we're here. The book of Daniel contains some of the most amazing and detailed prophecies in all of Scripture. Centuries and millennia in advance from these things happening, Daniel predicts events like way out in the future that are just like empires are going to fall, kings are going to do this he does he predicts some precise like details about a disease that's going to kill a future king. He uh, speaks about the future of the people of God and invasions that are just hard for them to understand, and they relate to some other events that don't even really apply to us. And in the midst of all of these prophecies, we can become uh, stressed and obsessed and combative, combative, combative about the interpretation of particular scripture. We can, we can try to make this about something that it's really not. And really what Daniel is trying to do is not like highlight some sort of deep theology, but he's trying to encourage us and fill us with hope so that we can face our foes, so we have hope in our distress, so that we have perseverance in our trials that we walk through, so that we will not let every prophetic mystery detail that's spoken over us or not spoken over us blur our vision, but instead he just wants us to see God's grace more clearly. That's what we're going after. Jesus is the ultimate hero of this book. And it's not about some deep theological thing, even though there's some really incredible things that happen, we're gonna scratch the surface of them, but it's not gonna be a space where we're really just gonna argue over the end times, okay? Because we, it'll be fun, and if you, if you approach it with the right heart, I'll love that, and we can have conversations about it for sure, but this is not really what the book's about, okay? And we're gonna be hanging out in here for 12, 14, 15, 21, who knows how many weeks um, as we walk through this, but that's the direction we're going. Okay, chapter one. Anybody scared to write in your Bible? Uh, get over it, okay? Uh, just go ahead and get over that. We want you to mark this thing up, like when my grandma gave me this. I bet your grandma's Bible, if if she gave you a Bible, I bet her Bible is super marked up. I bet it's falling apart, and it's evidence of her like journey with Jesus. Mark up your Bible, okay? Tear this thing up. This is where we're going. We, when you find, when you find yourself, this is sort of the start. When you find yourself planted in the soil of an anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Jesus culture, it is absolutely imperative that your hearts be drawn to heaven and your minds be saturated with the word of God. This is what Daniel is jumping into. Colossians chapter 3, this is a great place to start, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things below. This is the the cheat code to setting your mind on things above is right here. That's what Paul is saying to us. He reminds us in Romans 12, verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That renewal happens in God's word. These type of thoughts were essential to these Hebrew teenagers that end up as captives who get pulled out of their homeland and taken captive, this is how they survived. We know them because of VeggieTales and because of kids' ministry as Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always pronounce that thing wrong. This is actually Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That is their Hebrew names. The contents of this book span a time really from about 605 BC to about 539 BC. There's narrative language in here, there's apocalyptic language in here, and Daniel's just encouraging God's people to trust in God's provision to remain faithful no matter what happens. So we're just gonna start in verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, this is is God's chosen people, all right? King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know why we say Nebuchadnezzar. There's a D in there. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege on it. Verse 2 is wild. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. These are, this is God's chosen people. He allows this Babylonian king to come in and he goes, here you go, Yours. He could have at any point, we see it all throughout there, he could have just wiped the Babylonians off the planet. Like, now, we're not going to play that game today. Go away. Wander into the Red Sea. It'll swallow you up. He he could do any of those things. He hands him over to them along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. And this is what I need you to see. God will in your life, and I'm praying this for you, okay? If you come to me and have a conversation about missions, it's gonna be a specific prayer with your name included. But for the entirety of the ministry, I want you to hear this. God will sovereignly send you into difficult places to spread his name among the nations, and he's right to do so, okay? Hear that. Now, for some of you, you think difficult space and you're going like Sub Saharan Africa, you're going the Middle East, you're going to a place where you think the food's bad and like the weather is not ideal. For some of you, that type of like difficult place is gonna be Oklahoma. It's gonna be like deep Cajun Louisiana. It's gonna be California. All right? it's going to be Canada. All right, There's just some of you. Love it. Here, like, what's wrong with Canada? Nothing, okay. <laughs> some things. Uh, some things like America too. Uh, hear me. He's going to send you to some spaces that are going to be difficult to spread his name among the nations. Sometimes, hear this. Sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Sometimes God is going to allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. God's purpose in hardships is always multifaceted. He allows suffering in the lives of people to demonstrate his sovereignty, sovereignty, to strengthen their faith, to show himself wise and strong, to put his glory on display among the nations that they might be drawn to him. We saw that if you were with us this morning when we're looking at the story of the entire Old Testament. This is what he does. He puts us in spaces that are sometimes difficult so that other people look at that and go, how are they able to respond in such a way? This is what he's doing. He allows this king to come and overtake. And then what does it say? He carries them off to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God. He puts the vessels in the treasury of his God. He's, basically, he's going, I took this from your God. I put it in the house of my God so I can rub it in your face and go, my God's better. He deserves this stuff. And then the king orders his chief eunuch to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. He's trying to cut out the strong from among this nation. He's like, just bring them here. want to undercut them so that we look strong, so that they look weak. And here's a couple things I want to pull from the first three verses. We're just going to jump right into here. First, we can kind of see that God, we can really actually clearly see that God works in spite of the sins of his people. Throughout history, armies have invaded nations in acts of aggression and in acts of war. The results have been tragic. Lands destroyed, people are killed, property is damaged. We have prisoners of war um, that are sent away to foreign lands that never see their family again. They never see their friends again. And this is what happens to Daniel and his friends. They're uprooted and they're replanted in a harsh and wicked soil that we call Babylon that has a pretty deep biblical history if you look at it. And surprisingly, it is God's fault that all of this happens. It's, it's God's plan for this to happen to them. It wasn't just some evil king that invaded. No, God allows him to show up and he's going to use this despite the sins of his people. The historical context in verse 1. The verse 2 shows us like the theological explanation of why this is happening because Really, this is Judah's worst king ever. He was nothing like his father, uh, Josiah. King Nebuchadnezzar attacks them, attacks Jerusalem in 605 BC, and it happens because the Lord just handed him over to them. But then we see in the midst of that that God scatters his people. He, He sweeps up these four Hebrew guys and just sends them to a foreign land. And God can scatter you, and he does it for his glory, even if it doesn't make sense. How many of you are accidental Aggies? Some of you are just like I. Man, Tanner cheers for the weirdest teams. Or right, I was like, the other days like go frogs. Um, some of you just ended up here and you don't know how. You opened your eyes like I don't know what happens. I was. You can hiss at this or if you want to. I was supposed to go to Baylor. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, Signed a letter of intent to play baseball at Baylor. The Lord swept out that. And I ended up at some school in North Texas called Midwestern, um, which was where my wife was going to end up, which was where my call to ministry was completely fulfilled, where a lot of things happened. And I don't know how I got there. Just got swept out from underneath me. This is what happened. God scatters his people. And this is what he's doing there. And we have to be okay with that. So he, despite the sin of people, is going to use it. He's scattering his people for what reason? Verse 3. We'll read it again, and then we're going to go through verse 7. The king ordered Afinaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Here they are, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction and all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, Capable of serving in the king's palace, he was to teach them the the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. What we're seeing here is when the Lord sweeps your legs out from underneath you, and when he's 100% right to send you into spaces for his glory, so that the nations may know you, this is what you may face. And some of you, I know in the Christian bubble that is Aggieland, this is not maybe as prevalent, but some of you are probably seeing this. But we need to be aware of some of the things that may happen when you jump into a non-Christian culture because when you're, when you're inserted into this type of culture, they're going to throw a lot of things at you. And basically, they're going to try to challenge your worldview. And this is what's happening. Your worldview is the way that you look at the world. It's the way that you see life based off of your experiences. It shapes the way that you think. It shapes the way that you live. And here's a few definitions that I found that help us like understand worldview. A worldview is a comprehensive view of life through which we think, understand, and judge, and which determines our approach to life and meaning. A worldview is that basic set of assumptions that gives meaning to one's thoughts. A worldview is the set of assumptions that someone has about the way things are, about what things are, and about why things are. A worldview is a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold about the basic makeup of our world. One's worldview is perhaps best reflected by one's answers to the ultimate questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's it all about? Is there a God? How can I live and die happily? What is good and evil? Today in Today we live, if you don't know this, we live in a post-Christian context with an increasingly non-Christian agenda and a really, really strong secular worldview. And there's this pressure from every direction to force us to conform to the mindset and the spirit of this age. And this, this challenge isn't new because we're seeing it. Daniel and his three amigos here are facing the same challenge in their day. And what, what happens, what is going on? What is the Babylonians, what are they doing to them to, to maybe force their worldview on them? Verse 3, the king ordered them to, to, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. What did they do? They isolated them from their people. That's why we talk about community being so important. But they start with Isolation this strategy would increase the likelihood of these strong Hebrew boys to deconvert from the faith that they had in God and maybe trust the worldview of the Babylonians. It started with isolation. Verse four, then it was indoctrination. These these four men um, are, are strong. What are they? Without physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. But what does he do with them? You are to take these guys that are just like the studs and you're to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. You're to begin to change like the way that they're thinking. You begin to indoctrinate them with your type of education. This is kind of a brainwashing tactic that starts right off the bat. the The University of Babylon would be a strange place to go, um, but this is what they're this is what they're doing. They're getting this first-class secular education in Babylonian language, in philosophy, in literature, in science, in history, in in their culture. You know, we're an American; it's weird. Okay, we think like America is the greatest thing ever, and and thank you. Um, and I, I, like, it's okay to be like proud. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to say that because some of you will start singing. Uh, It's okay to be excited about, thank you, about where you come from and like we're spoiled to be in this place. There are some people that teach some of the craziest things from around the world, okay? I had a guy from Nanning, China live with me for four years and he argued that in their Chinese history class, they taught them that the Chinese invented pizza and snow cones. I'm like... Hung Tan Lu, you are crazy. We call, he, he picked the name Jack. And so we're like, Jack, that's the most insane thing I ever heard. Like, you don't think that you're going to take the pizza from the Italians, one, and snow cones. I don't know who did that, but it's not China. There's zero chance. It's, it's somewhere in East Texas, all right? And they, they put like half and half on top of their snow cones. I don't know why you guys do that. But that's, that's what they did. And so imagine what the Babylonians are probably teaching and how they're trying to just brainwash these guys to like, hey, here's even our religion. I know you follow the Lord your God, but here's our religion, and you need to hear it. It's probably part of our curriculum. There's this, these myths that we wanna teach you. We wanna teach you about the, the greatness of Marduk, who is their God. They wanna teach you about the importance of the uh, pantheon and poly, polytheistic deities that we worship. This is basically just everything that's coming from the Near Eastern world. This dream interpretation we're going to see, omen reading we're going to see, that's probably in their curriculum. And when you look at their type of education, we see that the new age movement that we're walking in right now is not really that new. It's just like an old age movement wrapped up in something cute. And this is what the world is trying to do to us, is indoctrinate us. They also tried to assimilate them into their culture, verse 5. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king, like converting these followers of God, of Yahweh, Converting them into patriots of Babylon had to require a total immersion of them into the world of Babylon. So we got to change their mind. We got to uh, change their lifestyle. They got to eat different. They got to drink like the Babylonians. The goal is to entice them um, into the delicacies and the privileges of Babylon to help them slowly become more like Babylon. And to hopefully wear them down and win them over. And at the end of three years, they were going to just be like, hey, here's your final exam before the king. Now you're gonna serve the king because you're one of us. This is what they're trying to do. Assimilate them into the culture. And then we see this cool little thing that we call confusion, which a lot of us are walking in. Verse six, among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. We see these four Hebrews exiled to Babylon. There may be others, but Daniel is just talking about these guys, um, all from Judah, and here's what their names mean. The name Daniel translates to Elohim is my judge. Okay, Elohim in its proper form just is talking about the God only the God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is like our God? Who is like Elohim? Azariah, Yahweh helps. Like like I love these names And, and you put them in context if you've read it, Elohim is my judge. Yahweh is gracious, who is like him because he helps. And then they get thrown into Babylon. We don't know what their new names are, but they were probably some sort of mock of their names. Names were a big deal then. And so they're like, hey, how can we give them names to honor Marduk? How can, we, how can we convert them into our way of thinking? But they all get these new names. Today, Like changing names isn't that big of a deal for some of you. Back then, it was the core. Back then, it was the core of the person. It was their identity. And so they started to, this little confusion tactic to them to make them think differently. Let's go to verse 8. Here, once we see kind of what they're doing, then we get into this. Verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. You see that? God granted that Nebuchadnezzar could take over that, that country. God allowed that. Then we see this. God granted Daniel, kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lowercase lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. It's like, if if you don't step up, grow that muscle, look bigger and better than everybody else, and I'm in charge of you, he's gonna cut my head off, is what he's saying. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based off of what you see. What what is Daniel saying to us right here? Okay, he's been kidnapped from home. He's been Assigned because of his, his ability, because of his looks, because of his stature, that he's gonna be one of the king's men, him and three of his friends. And when they begin to give them orders, this is what, are you, to, what you are to do. Daniel decides right then, probably way before then, I, I think I can argue, Daniel has already determined that he's gonna live his life in a way that's not gonna compromise or go against his convictions and his commitments to God. He's in a new place, being led by new people, being confused, trying to be assimilated into all of this. And he says, no, I'm, I'm, I've just determined in my heart early on that this is what's going to do. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Like, like how, how do you determine that? What, what does this look like? This immersion into the worldview of Babylon is not going to win over his heart. It's not going to win over his mind. Babylon would be where he is to live, but Babylon is not going to be his home. This is important. Abraham kind of had the same approach to life He's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and whose builder is God. That's Hebrews 11.10. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. Not building his kingdom here, but he's looking forward to heaven. And Daniel's going, hey, this Babylon place is great. Meat, good. Your wine's good. Like you've brought me into this space because I look good. My friends, we look good. We're going into a training regimen so we can look better. I'm gonna get to serve the king in his palace. All of this is good. I'm gonna commit to not defile myself before my God. And it's something that I have committed for a long time. I don't know what resolve this was, but I have to blame it on his parents. You You don't wander into a foreign country as a teenage boy surrounded by all kinds of stuff and just go, nah, not really for me. But instead he's living out the faith that is probably echoed in his life from his parents. Daniel and his friends are being forced to be in Babylon, but they wouldn't let Babylon get into them. They're like, we're not gonna eat this stuff. They made a conscious and determined decision to say no early on. And it was with courage and conviction that Daniel approached this chief of the eunuchs and said, hey, can you disregard the king's order? Could you allow us to not defile ourselves and see what happens? I just gotta say, hey, it's your parents' fault. The stand that they were taking had to have been years in the making. And hear me, here's the the biblical promise. God is going to uproot you and put you in places that are uncomfortable. He's going to surround you with people, even in America, even in the Christian bubble, that are going to try to persuade you, to assimilate you, to confuse you into making decisions that won't honor God so that you'll be more like them. These are all biblical promises of stuff to you. If you want to survive this space, you have to be like Daniel and start now, laying a foundation where you go, I am not going to to let them affect me, I'm gonna let my convictions rise up, I'm gonna honor God, I'm gonna determine in my heart that I'm not going to defile myself, okay? College is difficult. You're gonna be put in some spaces that are gonna be easy for you to mess up in. And this is a daily practice where you go, I'm just determining right now that I'm not going to defile myself in this space. You just resist the temptation to defile yourself. Community's important. God's word is important. Prayer is important. But it's a daily practice that gets you to that point. The next thing that we see in verse 9, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. That, that verse is weird because, because really, I, I kind of want to say that Daniel was a kiss up to these people. And that they were like, hey, like, I like you, Daniel. I'm going to, like, I have, he has favor from them. And so Daniel had more than conviction in this space. I think Daniel had wisdom. Daniel was blessed by God to walk in holiness, to walk in humility. And that's a rare combination for a teenager. We all know that. But God, God honored him as a servant. And it says that, like, when the Lord handed over Jehoiakim to them, God had granted Daniel kindness from these people and that he shared his faith and his convictions with his friends. Daniel stands his ground. They stand their ground. But he stands his ground, not like arrogantly, not like some loud, annoying Christian who's like, the king's food is rubbish. Get it away from me. I'm going to throw a fit. For some reason, he had the type of relationship says God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. he said, I'm scared. I don't want to do this. But Daniel comes up with another idea. He lived in such a way that people liked him. That's just what that was. When you think about your life, are you living in a way that people just like you? And, and I'm not saying like, be a goody-goody and make sure that everybody loves you, but, but be the type of person that people are just drawn to, that people aren't easily offended by, is a good way to say that. This is what Daniel lived out. And then in verse 11, he has this wisdom. He says, well, Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, why don't you test us this way? Test us for 10 days. Uh, 10 days is, it's a cool little theological connection we can make later. You can go back and listen to a podcast. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. It's not the greatest diet. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based off of what you see. He basically, with the wisdom that God had given him, offered a win-win situation to this guy. He says, hey, do this, test this, Went to went to the chief eunuch's like understudy. He said, "Hey, test us this way." Basically, they thought there were two options. Option one, they defile themselves; just do what they're told, eat the king's meat. Option two, they don't defile themselves, and their new friend who they found favor with loses his head. Daniel says, "Hold on, there's another way which everybody wins." He goes down to the the, the steward, to the guard. And he offers the solution of testing them for 10 days. This is what we're going to eat. See what happens. Their diet is simple. It's not going to break any Mosaic laws that they were under. They wouldn't. They, they would not have offended, uh, or they wouldn't have been offering things to pagan gods by maybe eating the king's food. There's a lot of analogies that you can draw from like eating the meat, drinking the wine, all of that stuff. Um, but basically what they were saying is that I don't want you to be in trouble. Test us this way. Let's see if God is going to prove himself to be faithful. And if not, then deal with us afterwards. And here's the thing that rises up in me. Being holy, honoring God with your life, is sometimes kind of risky. Holiness is just kind of a risky endeavor for us. All right? It's it's just challenging. Daniel knew that that his defilement and eating the king's meat would probably distance him from the Lord. And so he risks everything that he had in order to keep that from happening in his life. And this choice is worth it. I I love, I I read this the other day as we're preparing for this, Chuck Swindoll uh, summarized these verses by saying this in a world filled with people who rebel against the divine king, it is inevitable that believers of all ages face situations with their own convictions. We who are parents need to prepare our children for those occasions by both teaching them God's truth and modeling integrity. And all of us who are Christians need to personally commit ourselves to living God's way, regardless of the temptations to live otherwise. And that's what the world is going to come after you with. It's temptations to live in other ways, despite what God has for you. And this is what Daniel and his friends are doing. And they're like, if I live, great, I'm going to be stronger. If I die, then maybe like Paul, it was a gain to them. Verse 14. He agreed with them about this. He tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. How long did that last? There's not a release there. We think Daniel was, was in this place for about 80 years. Some of you are like, I've done the Daniel fast before. It's three days of just misery. This is this, is this man's diet at this point. We'll keep going. Verse 17. God gave these four men, these four young men, knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and the mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's an important little ending verse that puts us uh, in the historical perspective we're gonna see later on in here. But, but here's what happens. Daniel offers up a test and then Daniel trusts God to honor his faithfulness. And this is an important thing for you to grab early on. If we would learn, like as you engage with God's word and as you engage in prayer and as you see God move through community and and all of those things, if you would learn to just trust God with the results, to go, God is commanding me to do this, And there's gonna be some seasons where you think that you're faithful and other people are saying that you're faithful and the Bible would describe you as faithful and and we would look at you and go, they're they're leading a faithful life, but God's not doing something right now. Those are the seasons where you go, God, I've been faithful. I'm just gonna trust you to honor your promises. You are faithful. You are devoted to me. God's word speaks that. And even in seasons where I don't clearly see it, I'm just gonna trust you. And as they began to do that, here's a couple things that happened. Now, these aren't completely just like commanded promises to you, but I want you to see some things that happened in Daniel's life and in the lives of his friends. First, God blessed them physically. We see it in verse 14. At the end of 10 days, or 15, they look better and healthier than all, everyone else. They were faithful. God blessed them physically. The second one, God blessed them mentally. Verse 17, God gave them knowledge and understanding in every kind, in every kind of literature and wisdom. They, they, he blessed them mentally. I think verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than everybody else. He, he gave them wisdom. That, that, that's the Solomon prayer. I don't know how many of you are praying that. Some of you are like, math, I need wisdom. History, please, Lord, like show up. Um, he, he granted them that in the midst of their faithfulness, not in the midst of his laziness, okay? That's not a shot at college students, but it's a direct shot at college students, our prayers get strange sometimes when you do nothing and then you ask God to bless it. Daniel's living out the opposite at this point. And God blessed them mentally. Again, I can't prove to you biblically that that's a promise that if you're faithful in your quiet time, you're gonna pass algebra without trying. But hear me, this is one of the things that he does. Then in verse 17, he blessed them spiritually. This is a weird thing. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. He gives him Understanding in visions and dreams, this is a big thing to the Babylonians. We're going to see throughout this whole story. This gift from God is extremely um, valuable in chapter 2 and throughout. John MacArthur wrote this. God enabled Daniel to interpret dreams and receive visions. Visions and dreams were both a means of revelation from God, the former occurring while awake and the latter while asleep. So Daniel was gifted as a seer or a prophet. As such, he was to serve the very vehicle of God's divine revelations. This verse then becomes the backdrop for the rest of Daniel's prophecy. He just blessed them spiritually, and he blessed them socially. We see that. They're presented to the king in verse 18. They rise up in the ranks. King interviews them. No one's equal to them. They're smarter than, they're 10 times smarter than anybody else. They, they, they're blessed socially no one is found equal to them at all. And this, these four Hebrews get kind of the keys to the administrative process in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He was confident that they were going to serve and represent him well. And really what we see in the Old Testament right here in this narrative, we're seeing this principle lived out that Paul presents to the, to the Colossians in chapter 3. You can just write this on the side, Colossians 3, verse 22 through 24. This is a weird thing, but hear this. He says, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward as an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Like they're just living out that exhortation from Paul. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do everything for the glory of God. This is what they're living out. Verse 21 is is this cool little summary of the lifelong ministry of Daniel. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He lives through the entire Neo-Babylonian period continues into the reign of King Cyrus. And, and King Cyrus is when the Jews are released from captivity. And so he outlives his Babylonian captors. He lives longer than the people that brought him into there. And, and this, is, this is pretty wild. Like this, again, MacArthur wrote this about that. This is, this is Daniel's influence. Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity and uncompromising character had far-reaching results. This, This is pretty wild. For when I see the wise men coming from the east, I think of the impact of Daniel's theology and what it must have had on the Chaldeans' astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land. Influence that led to the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah and to reestablishing the nation of Israel. Influence that eventually led the wise men to come to crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. Daniel was behind the scenes of history of the Messiah as well as the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence, for through his prophecy he brings homage to the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns forever." Do you understand that the Lord uproots him and puts him in a culture that's gonna teach him the ways of the Chaldeans, and his influence affects the wise men who eventually go and just crown him king. How wild is that? And what did it take? Being uprooted from their comfort, sent to a strange land, in a a non-Christian kind of culture where crazy amounts of influence were poured upon them, and they said, no, I'm just gonna follow God no matter what it costs, and he stays there for 70 years. And God uses him in this giant way. And so this is what I want us to grab every time. How is this pointing to Jesus? And there's a lot of things that are pretty easy for us to understand, but, but I want us to grab a couple. And the band's gonna come up, there's your cue, guys. The band's gonna come up, we're gonna worship in response to this. Daniel and his three companions remained faithful to their true identity as God-fearers, Hebrews. They're obeying God to the shining testimony of what God is doing, his providence and his grace, and God sends them on a missionary journey making them leave their family behind so that they might be faithful and true witnesses to kings and to nations in foreign lands. We're praying some of this for you guys, that God is raising up engineers and teachers and nurses and doctors and, and agricultural people and, and, and people that are just gonna go around the world into strange and foreign lands for his glory. And you're gonna use your job to make a kingdom impact for the rest of your life. And, and it's a weird thought because there's people in this room that, that we're just like, we deeply love, and we're praying that when you graduate, we never see you again. And not as an insult, but that God would plant you in a space that you never return from. And we get to heaven and we go, Wow, look at this. How eternity is rearranged because of what these people have done. And this is what Daniel and them are called to, but hear this. they beautifully exemplify what's going to happen 600 years later when another Hebrew is sent to a foreign land who's going to bear witness for the one true God who leaves his home that's a much better home willingly embraces the sinful world that's trying to defile him that's trying to to pull him in. Do do you see this? Babylonian king, this emperor, says, hey, come here. I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to tempt you with riches. I'm going to tempt you with food. And then then Jesus goes against the emperor of emperors. We call him Satan. He goes against Satan, and what does Satan do? Hey, come here. I want to tempt you. I want to tempt you with food. I want to tempt you with power. I want you to to lean into the things of this world. And, And like these Hebrews, he finds favor with God and with man. We see that in Luke chapter 2. He's like while he was still a child, his teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He embodies the wisdom of God. And and it's cheesy. You've probably heard it before, but Christ is the better Daniel. He's the greater Hananiah, the greater Mishael. He's the greater Azariah. Jesus refuses to compromise when he's faced with all of the temptations, when the emperor's coming against him. And, and there's, a, there's a certain like divine irony in all of this that's kind of hard to miss. It's grace-filled and it's gospel-rich, and you're gonna hear this over and over again in the story of Daniel, where these Hebrew boys are going to give faithful witness before the chief eunuch and before the king They're brought to live in the king's palace. Jesus gives faithful witness before Herod and before Pilate, and he's not invited into the palace. He's nailed to a cross. And yet through his death, anyone who trusts in him lives forever with the king of kings for eternity in a much better place. And so when you read the promises in Daniel chapter one, but it is just and right for God to uproot you and put you in difficult places, to be tempted by difficult people, to live out a difficult life for his glory. You're gonna read the rest of the story and you go, I'm going to find strength. I'm going to find courage to do whatever God calls me to because he is faithful, because he is with me. And I know the end. Daniel doesn't even know the end. We know the end. That that Jesus has has conquered not only the temptation of the the enemy when he got here, but he's conquered death and the grave. The keys to death and Hades are in his hands. And, And those that would but trust him get eternal life. He is with you and he is accomplishing so much more than you know. The story is bigger than you, but he's inviting you into it. And it's an unbelievably wild ride. So hold on to it. Our, our only hope in this is to just trust Jesus. And so in this space, I, 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 got, I can assume that we're surrounded by a lot of people that just really love and are following Christ well. But if you're not in that space, that's the challenge tonight. The Bible's really clear. and We can go to a hundred other spaces that say, in this world, you will have trouble. This is going to be difficult. What I'm calling you to is challenging. For unbelievers, it's probably even worse. And you're already facing difficulties. You're like week 3 you're rolling up into, into school and you, you can't handle it anymore. And you're crying out to God and he's going, I got you. And hear me, I put you in this space for a reason. You're, you're gonna struggle out loud for a reason. People are watching to see how you respond when you just run towards me. And So here's, here's the promise that Jesus brings this full circle. And I love that he offers this and <laughs> that wasn't offered to Daniel. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest is literally his spirit. And that spirit doesn't necessarily mean that life gets really, really easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to just be simple at that point, that that spirit is a calming nature over you. It's a, a breath that is breathed upon you and it allows you to take your next step knowing that he's with you. That's what he's calling you to, to run after him no matter what. Let me pray, we're going to respond in worship tonight. And if it, we'll close in a second, and you'll know this. If you're wanting to have a conversation with somebody that doesn't have to wait, you can grab them and pull them to a space in the room. There's freedom and how you respond. You can grab one of the leaders tonight. And then once we're done, we do the same thing. We're going to kick all of you that want to be loud out of this room. And if the Lord's just stirring something up in you, you're allowed to remain in the space for as long as you need tonight. Let me pray for us, and let's stand and sing together. God, I thank you for your goodness. We thank you for these stories that are so much bigger than us. We thank you for Daniel and and his faithfulness, how he found favor with you. And and I'm asking like selfishly that for for us in this room. Will we lean into you by your spirit and find favor in in spaces that we don't deserve it? And will we recognize that you're gonna uproot us and call us into spaces that are difficult? Some of us are in that right now. And for some of us, it's future thinking. Would you be preparing our hearts for that or would you be sustaining our hearts while we're in it? Uh, knowing the end, like you're, you're for us and you're near us. You're accomplishing things for your glory and that involves our good even when it doesn't feel safe and, and even when it doesn't make sense. Would we in these seasons learn to trust you more? We thank you for the story of Daniel. Would it continue to come alive in our hearts and we would give you credit and all of those things in Jesus' name.